doing a short series on wisdom based on some questions that we got uh, over the last couple months. Last week, we talked about how Jesus is a wisdom teacher. He is, he's, sometimes he's kind of cryptic. He wants us to work for the things that we learn, uh, and he wants us to be students of wisdom. This week, we're going to ask the question, where do we go for wisdom? And um, I, I spent some time kind of wrestling this week about uh, the message this morning. Um, kind of disclaimer, this is just a book report. I'm, I'm giving a book report uh, like I did in high school. Um, that's a little weird. Um, it's not our usual. We usually go through large sections of scripture, through books and things like that. Um, and I was, I was talking to a buddy of mine who's a pastor in Oregon, and I said, yeah, I really wanted to share this content at church. And he goes, oh, no, that's not a Sunday morning activity. That's a Sunday school class thing. And, and I thought, is it? Is that a thing? Is there like a kind of teaching that I am not allowed to bring on a Sunday morning? Maybe, but I'm doing it anyway. So if you guys don't like it, I apologize. Um, we're going to start in Proverbs 9. And we're going to jump around quite a bit. There's going to be some scripture on the screen. Uh, but if you have your Bibles, open up to Proverbs chapter 9. Brian read it. Uh, in, in Proverbs 9, the, the writer uses this metaphor of these two women. There's the woman wisdom and the woman folly. And both of these women are preparing meals at their homes. And they're inviting people in to participate in their meals. And there's just a couple things that I want to draw out of this passage. Um, the first thing is, in the first six verses, uh, it says, wisdom has built her house. She's carved out her seven pillars. She's prepared her meat. She's mixed her wine. She's set her table. She has sent out her servant. She calls out from the highest points of the city. Whoever is inexperienced, enter here. To the one who lacks sense, she says, come eat my bread and drink the wine I have mixed. Leave inexperience behind and you will live Pursue the way of understanding. Notice she doesn't, she doesn't focus in on individual people. She doesn't say, that guy looks like he's a little iffy. He should come over. She sends her servants out to everyone in the city. What's the implication there? We are all inexperienced people. We are all unwise people. We come into this world, um, in the language of Proverbs, foolish Wisdom knows this and has a call to everyone who would come. And I want to skip down to verse 13. Look at this other woman. Folly is a rowdy woman. She is gullible and knows nothing. She sits by the doorway of her house on a seat at the highest point of the city, calling to those who pass by, who go straight ahead on their paths. Whoever is inexperienced and are here to the one who lacks sense, she says, stolen water is sweet and bread eaten secretly is tasty, but he doesn't know that the departed spirits are there, that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. Sheol is a synonym for the grave. So the implication in this that I want to bring out is that if we are people that reject wisdom, if we are people that choose folly, there are real consequences to that. And the consequence is death. It's a life or death decision sometimes which path we will follow. Skipping back to verse 10, it's kind of the centerpiece of this chapter. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. 
and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. This is where wisdom starts. As the people of God, we know that the relationship we have with God is where wisdom begins. And then the last thing about this interesting chapter is that both the wise woman and the foolish woman are preparing meals. And the, Prover- the, the writer of Proverbs is envisioning the process of gaining wisdom as eating food. And this is kind of the springboard to my book report this morning. Um, this book right here, this is called The Wisdom Pyramid. It's by a guy named Brett McCracken. Yeah, it's up there. Um, I, I know I recommend a lot of books. It's kind of my love language. Um, but this is a really good book. And uh, I would, I, there's three copies in the church library, and I'm going to use the rest of our time this morning to kind of go through some of the things that he talks about in this book and uh, recommend hard that you all read it because it's excellent. Um, and he, McCracken uses the idea of the new, the, um, Nutritional pyramid, the food pyramid, remember that from grade school health class where you, you had the, like, the grains on the bottom and then the fruits and the veggies were next and then like meats and then all the way up it was like Twinkies at the top. And, and the point was like you're supposed to eat a lot of the things on the bottom. They're the foundation of your body's nutrition. And the, as you get closer to the top, you should have fewer and fewer of those things. Now, I think that whole pyramid thing has been... Uh, changed like a dozen times. But the sentiment for the wisdom pyramid is the same. The things on the bottom of the pyramid, these are things that are foundational for our life. If we want to be wise people, we should be immersed in these things. And the higher up you get on the pyramid are things that you should use less and less, and they're weaker and weaker sources of wisdom. Using the food metaphor, McCracken says that we do three things in our modern world because we are people that are largely shaped and addicted by cable news and social media and the internet. The first thing we do is that we eat too much. One of my favorite meals is what we call in our household snacky dinner. And I think you guys had snacky dinner actually at the women's conference on Friday. It's the best. It's salami and cheese and chips and pickled asparagus and stuffed grape leaves and carrots and hummus and on and on and on. It's little plates of delicious things. And whenever we eat snacky dinner, I always overeat. Because each little flavor is a different, exciting experience. And I can't just settle on a few. I have to have some of everything. And it's all out on the table, so I just continue to graze. Do you know this? Like you go over and it's like a Super Bowl party or whatever, and it's just constant little bites of food. And it's just one bite at a time. You never have a full plate, but you leave the experience going, oh my gosh, I ate so much. We live in an environment of Google of 24-7 cable news, of hot takes on Twitter, and the information intake that we participate in is, I'll just have a little bit more. I'll just eat a little bit more. I'll just check my phone right now, and then I'll check it five minutes later, and then I'll refresh my feed and just eat a little bit here and a little bit there and a little bit here and a little bit there, and we just constantly ingest information and we overeat. The second thing McCracken says is that we eat too fast. Uh, I don't usually eat at convenience stores. My wife tells me I can't. But when I travel, um, sometimes I do. 
And it's very easy to eat at convenience stores. That's why they're called convenience stores. But usually after I've gone in and I've gotten my big gulp and my, uh, you know, chimichangas or whatever, like I feel sick. Because junk food, fast food is not a healthy diet. I have friends growing up that they were just very strange because they had um, only eaten a very small amount of unhealthy food, Easy Mac, hot dogs, pizza, and then they became adults and they were unable to eat anything else. I, I went with my, when we were teenagers, a buddy of mine and I went to Mexico with my family and we went to this really nice restaurant in Puerto Vallarta and he asked the waiter if he could have a hamburger. And we all went like, what is wrong with you? And, but that was just the thing. He could not eat a wide variety of things because all he ate were fast food, easy things. Brett McCracken writes, scholars have found that the junk food nature of information intake online is rewiring our brain such that our cognitive abilities to think carefully and critically are being eroded. When we eat too quickly, when we absorb the latest and the greatest in junk information, it literally changes the way our brain works and we cannot digest wisdom. And the third thing McCracken says is that we only eat what tastes good to us. One of my favorite things to eat is Steve's cold brew coffee ice cream. Comes in pints, it's like $7 a pint. We never get it, unless it's at grocery outlet for 99 cents. And then Joanna will buy like a dozen pints and put them in our freezer. Our entire freezer is filled with this ice cream. And I could literally just eat it all. But that's not very good for me, is it? See, if I don't eat things that are good for me that I don't necessarily crave, I'm going to get sick if I only eat the things that I want. And the internet and most of our sources of information, they're designed to give us only what we want all the time. And the more we are shaped by our individual experiences online, the less empathy we have for others, the less ability we have to ingest things that we don't immediately love. Imagine going to a church potluck where everybody brings their favorite food to share. But my assumption, I've brought some fried chicken. My assumption is that my fried chicken is the best food and I've brought it to share with you. But you've brought potato salad and you think that's the best food and you've brought it to share with me. But instead of sharing it with each other, I get upset because I'm not eating your potato salad. I'm eating my chicken and you better eat my chicken too or I'm gonna be upset about it. I'm not eating your chicken. I brought potato salad because it's way better than chicken. And we fight because we only will eat our favorite thing. We tend to eat too much, we tend to eat too fast, and we only eat what's good for us. And so McCracken lays out in the book a diff different way to, to gain wisdom. And he starts at the bottom of the pyramid. And he starts with the staple, the things that we should be filling our diets with, and he moves up to the use sparingly category. 
And this morning, I want to highlight three of his categories. I'll let you read the book to get all of them. But the first one, and maybe unsurprisingly for us in this room, the foundation for wisdom is the scriptures, the Bible. Psalm 1, verses 1 through 3 says, How happy is the one who does not walk in the advice of the wicked or stand in the pathway of sinners or sit in the company of mockers. Instead, his delight is in the Lord's instruction and he meditates on it day and night. He is like a tree planted beside flowing streams that bears its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. As followers of Jesus, as Christians, our primary authority is the Bible. The main place that we should be going to for wisdom is the Scripture. The Bible is our daily foundation. It's what we should be eating the most of. And this is something that we believe. It's in our doctrinal statements. It's in our discussions with each other that the Bible is God's unchanging word. But many of us have a really hard time reading and learning from it. How many of us are guilty of picking up our phones the very first thing in the morning to check our email or our social media feeds before we even get out of bed? Do you ever do that thing where like um, face ID doesn't work because you've got such, you know, bed face? McCracken likens the word of God to bread, which is what Scripture does as well, right? The word of God is bread. Jesus writes in Matthew 4, man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. The funny thing about bread is that um, historians can point to the invention of bread as like the catalyst for civilization, Everybody's just kind of doing their thing in these loose tribal groups until somebody figures out how to make bread. Bread is this major source of nutrients and energy, and it's this powerhouse that starts humanity on the road to building farms and cities and technology and all the things that we have today. Bread is not always glamorous. Sometimes it's very simple. Sometimes it feels really boring, but it's powerful. The only way that we're going to be wise people is with a steady, consistent diet of Scripture. But Scripture doesn't just operate alone. We have this book that we read from, but we also have the Holy Spirit inside of us. Those of us that are Christians this morning have been given the Spirit of God. 1 Corinthians 2, 10 through 13, Paul writes, Now God has revealed these things to us by the Spirit, since the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except his spirit within him? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now, we have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit who comes from God, so that we may understand what has been freely given to us by God. We also speak these things not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the spirit, explaining spiritual things to spiritual people." So as followers of Jesus, we have the promise that God's word is the foundational source of wisdom and God's spirit inside us will help us to understand it and grow from it. So the question for us this morning is, what does your diet of scripture look like? Is the Bible a foundation in your information intake on a weekly basis? If you ate good food the way you intake scripture, would you be a healthy person? 
If you never, if you, if all of your um, nutritional intake equals your scripture intake, what would your body be like? John Owen, who's a Puritan, said, if you have no appetite for God's word, then your spiritual life is in a bad state. I find that I have a tendency to flip the whole pyramid upside down. The top of the the wisdom pyramid is uh, the internet. But I spend a ton of time learning from the internet and very little time in scripture. And it's my job to spend time in scripture. And when that's the case, it's no wonder that I feel spiritually malnourished and unwise. So the foundation of of wisdom for us is God's word, scripture. But the second tier, not as important as God's word, but almost important, is the church. Listen to Hebrews 10, 24 through 25. And let us consider one another in order to provoke love and good works, not neglecting to gather together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other and all the more as you see the day approaching. The author of Hebrews says that we should be people that gather together, and when we gather together, we should be encouraging each other, and even the word is provoking each other, like poking at each other, to love and good works, that we should be spurring each other on. And more and more as the day that Jesus returns comes closer. McCracken writes, the church, the people of God, is second only to the Bible, the word of God, as a source of reliable and transformative wisdom. I'm a Star Trek fan, and um, in Star Trek The Next Generation, the biggest, baddest villain is the Borg. You guys know the Borg? Some of you do, some of you don't, that's fine. The Borg are a cybernetic race of aliens that live in a collective. And their sole goal is to take you and make you part of their collective. And it's really interesting because the, the, the way that it's framed is that this is the worst possible thing that could happen. To have your individuality taken away and made part of this whole is the greatest possible fear, the greatest possible injustice. And I don't want to push too hard against individual freedom because I think we get a lot of our ideas of what individual freedom is from Scripture. We are made in God's image. We are loved by God. But it's interesting that individuality is like the primary value of our culture. You can't tell me what to do you can't, I don't want to be a part of something that takes away from who I am by myself. I can't let myself be defined by a community. See, we get our understanding of individual rights from Scripture, but we have to hold in tension this idea that we are supposed to be defined by our community. Listen to Paul again in 1 Corinthians. This is chapter 12, verses 12 and 27. For just as the body is one and has many parts, and all the parts of the body, though many, are one body, so also is Christ. Now you are the body of Christ and individual members 
of it. That whole chapter, Paul goes on this comparison between the human body and the body of Christ, the church. And there's this, this idea that we are individual parts, but our individual partness is kind of meaningless outside of the body. We, we don't have any function if we're just like severed fingers lying around. We only make sense in the context of the whole body. My deficiencies are made up for by the strengths of others. We belong to a community of older people, younger people, men and women, all of whom who have had a multitude of different life experiences and journeys with Jesus. And that makes me a wiser person. When I need wisdom, I look to scripture, but then secondarily, I look to the men and women in this community for guidance. I, uh, I have a few routines every week. I gather with you all on Sunday mornings. I get coffee with three or four guys Monday morning. Uh, Monday night, we have our community group at our house where about, a, I don't know, 10 people get together and study the word and hang out. And then I come here on Thursday nights for prayer. And when I'm struggling with something, when I need wisdom, I want to be on the lookout for that wisdom to come from God through the men and women of this community. I want my ears open to the things that you all are saying to me that are actually the voice of God. Sometimes that looks like me actually asking, hey, Brian, this is what I'm dealing with. What do you think? Hey, Levi, this is what I'm going through. What's your perspective? But sometimes it's just, it just comes out. Do you ever have that experience where you haven't told anybody what you're struggling with, what the questions you have are, and that person just says exactly what you needed to hear? It's because that's how the Spirit of God works, granting us wisdom through His church. And not just this church. We are a multi-generational global church. We just started in the community groups uh, a, a series on the Apostles' Creed, which is a second century doctrinal statement that the church formulated and has lasted for the last 2,000 years. And it's part of it is a, it's a reminder to us that we aren't the first people to worship Jesus. We are the latest people in a long line of people who have wrestled with these things already. And there's so much wisdom to gain through God's people throughout the generations. And we are a foolish people. I am a foolish person if I think that my own personal experience of life is always the most accurate lens with which to make decisions. The author of Hebrews writes in chapter 12, therefore, he, he's just got done saying, think about all of the men and women that have come before you that have followed Jesus and all the ways that they've struggled and all the ways they've remained faithful. Because of that, since we also have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Notice the author of Hebrews says, we keep our eyes on Jesus but we're not alone. We are in this, the presence of this great cloud of witnesses both throughout Christian history and in this room today. So the question for us is, 
Are you in a position where you are able and willing to let the collective guidance of the people of God throughout history and in this local body be a source of wisdom for you? Do you you know people in this body? Do Do you get involved in each other's lives to the point that they can speak to you? Hey, man, I... I noticed this in your life. What do, you, what do you think about that? You have to have a level of familiarity with people before they'll even be willing to offer wise counsel. Do you have those relationships? And then also, when the wisdom of the church or its members conflicts with your own personal thoughts, is your reflex to just write that off? Or is it to reflect on whether or not your perspective is as clear as it could be. There was a um, celebrity dust-up a year or so ago between Chris Pratt and Elliot Page. Chris Pratt is a, is a Christian brother. He attends a church in Southern California um, that is um, orthodox in its view of human sexuality. It, it, it holds to the truth that the church has for 2,000 years that, that marriage is intended for a, uh, a man and a woman in a covenant. And Elliot Page, who is uh, not of that opinion, called him out on that and said that he went to a church that was bigoted. And Pratt said, I'm not going to let the church define what I believe. Even though I go there, I don't have to subscribe to what they teach. And that's a real bummer because the church, the church isn't infallible. The church has made mistake after mistake after mistake over its uh, long history. But does the church have 2,000 years of collective wisdom? Yeah, it does. And on issues where it has wrestled for a long, long time and come to conclusions about how to understand God's word we would be wise to listen to it. So our foundation is God's word. Above that, we look to the collective wisdom of God's people. In McCracken's book, the next thing he talks about is nature, which we're not gonna talk about. I want to focus in on one other level of his pyramid that I just find interesting and I think is, is helpful, and that's about halfway up. He talks about books. In Proverbs 25, verse 2, we read, it is the glory of God to conceal a matter and the glory of kings to investigate a matter. See, back in that society almost all of your energy would have gone to keeping your life running. You were a farmer, you were a tradesman. Day after day after day, you would work. The king, however, he actually had free time because he was the king. And so we see Solomon, we talked about it last week, Solomon talked about plants and birds and reptiles and he like had all of this information because he had the free time to study. One of the amazing things about the world we live in is we probably have more free time than the kings in Solomon's day. 
when we definitely have more access to information. You and I have time to learn, to investigate, to grow in our understanding of things. And the book is a valuable tool in finding wisdom. McCracken points out that the book helps us to connect with other people and other ideas. When you read a book, you enter into the world of someone else. Joanna and I are reading Sense and Sensibility together, and it is a practice of empathy for both of us, but especially me, to learn how to understand the world through the lens of the Dashwood family. Because these young women in this uh, Victorian age are very, very different from me. And even though it's fiction, in order to make sense of what we're reading, I have to practice my empathy muscles. Books help us get into the head of someone else. Sometimes in fiction, but definitely in nonfiction. If you read a book from a perspective that you don't entirely agree with, you have to wrestle with things in a way that uh, the online media that we typically ingest doesn't require you to do. In Acts 17, Paul is in Athens, and Luke records about the Athenians. He says, now all the Athenians and the foreigners residing there spent their time on nothing else but telling or hearing something new. This is such a perfect explanation of the kind of uh, information that we absorb. You ever find yourself, it's called doom scrolling, Something terrible is happening in the world. And you're just, what's happening now? What terrible thing is happening now? Refresh that feed to see if anything more terrible happened. I've been doing that all throughout 2020. Or like you watch cable news. I always thought this was funny, even, even as, a, as a younger person. When the 24-hour news cycle started, CNN launched, what if we do news all day long? they quickly realize that they don't have enough news for all day long. And so they just have to repeat stuff. And then they have to make stuff up. They don't really make it up, but they like make it newsworthy. That's, I mean, really, that's, there's a lot of stories that they, they share that aren't super newsworthy. But then they have the breaking news thing. Like it used to be like, breaking news, President Kennedy was shot. Or breaking news, we landed a spaceship on the moon. But now it's like, breaking news, uh, the president is still the president. Can you believe it? Breaking news. The Congress is meeting this week. And like, is that really breaking news? That's just kind of regular news, isn't it? But they have to make it exciting or we'll quit watching it. I need something new. All of your social media apps, you, you pull them down and then the little thing spins and then you get new content that is specifically designed to mimic a slot machine. That's why they work that way, because of the dopamine rush to your brain. Tell me something new. But when we read books, especially old books, classic books, it pushes back against the way our culture is shaping our brains. Marilyn Robinson writes, those who have read widely and well will have many resources to apply to what they read. 
while those who don't will have less basis for inference, deduction, and analogical thought, making them ripe for falling prey to unadjudicated information, whether fake news or complete fabrications. That's a bunch of fancy words, but she basically says, reading books teaches us wisdom. McCracken says, at the time when the glut, speed, and tailored-to-you nature of information is making us ever more prone to misinformation and unsound wisdom, reading books offers a powerful antidote. Books confront the too-much-information problem by focusing our attention on one thing for a longer, deeper time. They confront the too-fast problem by forcing us to sit with one writer's perspective for long enough to really grapple with it. Books challenge the too-focused-on-me problem by putting us in another's shoes. And I found this to be true in my own life. My daughter, Karis, reads constantly. She reads hundreds of pages a day. It just blows my mind. She'll get a book that's like this thick, and the next day she'll tell me how it ended. But I find that I can't read like that anymore. I think I did when I was little. I was reading a book recently about Adam and Eve. It was written by a geneticist, and so it was super science-y. And I'd get like six pages through, and there'd be like a subheading, and I'd be like, oh, great, I can take a break. And then I'd go jump on my phone. It's because I have this weird addiction to fast and more cheap information. I don't have the capacity any longer to sit with a book for an extended amount of time because our world is reshaping our brains. So you may say, like, if we have the Bible, if we have the greatest book, this foundational wisdom, why should we bother reading lesser books? This quote by Augustine, he says, uh, all branches of heathen learning have not only false and superstitious fancies, but they contain also liberal instruction, which is better adapted to the use of the truth and some most excellent precepts of morality, and some truths in regard even to the worship of the one God are found among them. Augustine says, even though you might read books and they contain error, false and superstitious fancies, they still have something in them that's praiseworthy, something in them that you can learn from, and even some of them, even if they don't intend to, point us back to God. Good books, are not a sup- or are, good books are a supplement to God's word. They're not a replacement for it. If you are going to just be reading one thing on a daily basis, you should read the Bible. But social scientists have determined that most of us read about 100,000 words a day. And most of it comes from noise on our devices. And we would all be better off if we replaced some of that noise with a good book. And I know I I have this, I'm a a big book person. I I love books. And I know I've had a conversation with some of you that, you know, you're not really readers. And there are valid reasons why it might be difficult to read. There There are medical conditions that make it hard to read. But I wonder if for many of us, we've just been conditioned not to. I mean, I would be somebody that would say, like, I'm not really an exerciser. I just, I just don't really do it. But that's not because I'm not capable. It's because I'm lazy. 
It's because I don't want to, because it's hard. But if I started practicing exercise more consistently, I would get better at it and it would become easier. Some of us, we, we read audiobooks, which is great. But if you find yourself spending hours online search, surfing through thousands of words, but you can't get through a 200-page book, I wonder if it's not a lack of ability, but just a lack of practice. So the question is, what books are we reading? What books are we reading to learn from? What books are we reading that are just for fun? And if you're not reading, I would encourage you to make time to start. It's good for us. It does something to our brains that helps us think better, and it's an important source of wisdom. McCracken ends the book with chapters on art. We've talked about art a little bit here before. And finally, in the very top slot, the use sparingly slot, the slot that's got Twinkies in it, social media and the internet. And his takeaway in the book is not that we cut that out of our diets. He says we should be engaging in those things. That's where the people are. That is where our culture is headed and we are missionaries. But we should be intentional about how we engage with that form of information. So that's my plug this morning. I would encourage all of you to read the Wisdom Pyramid and take its advice to heart. It's really helped me in this last season. In Matthew 7, Jesus says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the rivers rose, and the winds blew and pounded that house. Yet it didn't collapse because its foundation was on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the rivers rose, the winds blew and pounded that house, and it collapsed. It collapsed with a great crash. Jesus and his words should be our foundation. Everything that we build on top of that should be wise. And so many voices that we hear want us to do just the opposite. Build our foundation on something else, whatever it is, and relegate Jesus and the word of God to just like a cute sign above the kitchen window. I know for myself, I... I frequently have to evaluate what my wisdom intake looks like and recalibrate it to be healthier with the word of God at the foundation, the wisdom of God's people, the wisdom that we find in nature and good books and um, relegate my social media and my um, television intake to the use sparingly category. And because this is so countercultural, this is so hard for us, um, we shouldn't be surprised by that. First Corinthians chapter one, Paul says, for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but is the power of God to us who are being saved. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and I will set aside the intelligence of the intelligent. Jesus, in his very coming, bucks the trend of popular wisdom 
A great leader should come in power. He should come in strength. He should vanquish his foes, but Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus comes in weakness. Jesus comes in humility. Jesus allows his enemies to defeat him on the cross, and he rises from the dead. And this is the very center of who we are as Jesus' people. And so it shouldn't surprise us when the culture tells us this is what wisdom looks like. It's having this many Instagram followers, or it's um, making sure that you align yourself with this particular group. And we hear the wisdom of God that says, no, that this, this ancient book is the source of true wisdom that comes through the Son of God and his relationship with you and the power of the Holy Spirit. And this is what we, we think about at communion because we, we remember the cross of Christ. We remember the death of Jesus, his body broken and his blood shed. And the cross is an upside down wisdom. Jesus defeats death by dying. And we live by giving up our lives. And we're called by the grace of God and the power of his spirit to pursue that kind of wisdom. What does that look like for us to live our lives modeled after who Jesus is? So we're going to pray and we're going to sing. We're going to take communion together. I would just encourage you, besides to read this book, um, I would encourage you to, to reflect on where you are getting most of your wisdom. Does it come from just all those sources that flood in around you or does it intentionally come from choices you make to eat well from the word, from the guidance of the church, from things that last a little longer and have a little more sustainability than your newsfeed and your Instagram story? You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur d'Alene podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.